Thanks, John, Cara, beautiful as always, and a special thanks to our scripture reader this morning, Mr. James. Thank you very much. I hope you'll be reading more scripture here in the future. So, uh, as already it's been shared this morning that we have much to be thankful for. Um, God is alive, He is active, and He is working not only in our city, in our communities, but He's at work here in our church family at Thornhill. And uh, some of you are visiting here maybe for the first time this morning, and we are glad and happy you are here. Thanks for being here. Um, Afterwards, if you see some new faces in the foyer, don't be shy. Don't be scared. Go up and introduce yourself to somebody. Um, I shared last week how I'm actually an introverted extrovert, meaning uh, it takes me a while to get comfortable before I can reach out and, and, and talk to new people. But because I serve a God that's bigger than my fears, the Holy Spirit inside of me provides a love that I can't muster up on my own. So I can go into a crowded foyer after a service and introduce myself to somebody new. Uh, Last week I met Sylvain and Valerie for the first time and that I saw them here downstairs for breakfast, so that was good. This morning I met Sharon for the first time, so see if you can find out who those people are after the service. Uh, Again, I'm thankful for the breakfast this morning. I know... uh, I know it's a cool thing to be able to come and sit down and share a meal with each other. I don't believe it was one of the options at Bible college, but I think there should be a theology class on food because it's something special when people sit down and share a few stories and eat a meal together. And one day, there'll be the Lord's Supper in heaven for all of those who follow Jesus Christ. Okay. Oh. I think my butterflies are all in formation now, so maybe we can begin here. Uh, I, am a, I am a new preacher, you could say. So uh, for the last several weeks, we've been following a sermon series here at Thornhill in the book of Colossians. That is a letter in the New Testament, one of the 66 books in the scriptures. And I've been following a sermon series by Pastor Paul Godhart from Las Vegas, and uh, I've been emailing back and forth with him, letting him know how it's been going. And some of you have shared that, you know, you're excited about the, the study that we're doing in Colossians. And hopefully over the next several months, we'll get through chapters 1 through 4. But this morning, we're still in chapter 1. Uh, I had James read verses 3 to 8, so we can see the flow uh, of what's going on here. But we're going to focus on verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. So, let's see where we are here. So far, we've talked about the context of this church in Colossae. And uh, last Sunday, we were simply asking the question, how can somebody live in victory while going through a tough time? And I made six points uh, last week. We, were only be, we only got through three of them, which is fine. We'll just, we'll just keep going it as God leads here. So we're going to finish with the last three points of those verses today. But first, as always, uh, let me pray Help calm my nerves and allow God's Spirit to move in us this morning. So please pray with me. Father God, we are so thankful, as been, has been mentioned, for the gift of life. And uh, we have the opportunity to, to dig into your scripture this morning. And we pray that your Spirit would bring this word alive in our hearts 
because each of us are coming from a different place, a different background, a different situation. And I know that your word is powerful and has the ability to challenge and transform and encourage and lead us, each of us, into the things that we need to find direction on. And, and we just pray that you have your way with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. And if you like... Uh, you can follow along with your iPhone or your iPod if you want to get your app out. Or if you have a paperback Bible, you can follow along in that. Because I'll be jumping around a little bit and I'm not sure if I've put it all up on the PowerPoint yet. So last Sunday we asked the question, how can you live in victory during a tough time? And like I said, from verses 4 through 8, we found six things. Number one, the first thing we learned is that you got to make sure that your faith is in Jesus Christ. I can't tell you if you have faith in Christ. The person next to you can't tell you if you have faith in Christ. Only you know if your faith rests in Jesus. We learned that number two, in order to have a victorious life, we need to maintain a love for all the saints. That's all the brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the local church, our church family, but also our brothers and sisters globally. Like you read about the persecuted church on the back of the bulletin. We're to maintain a love for all the saints. Number three, we talked about this last Sunday. You remember the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's not all about the here and now. There's a better day coming. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more suffering. Remember the hope laid up for you in heaven. And today we're going to start with number four. Allow the gospel to do its full and continual work in your life. Allow the gospel to do its full and continual work in your life. This is found at the end of verse 5 and 6 where it says, The gospel which has come to you, just as in the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit, increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So, first thing I want us to understand is what each part of this statement tells us about the impact and the reach of the gospel. It's local. It's come to you. It's come to me. But it doesn't just stop with you and I. It's universal, just as in the world also. So it produces growth. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It changes lives, even as it has been doing in you. So it's very personal. And, and this change has been going on inside of you since the day that you heard of it. And it opens our minds to understand the grace of God in truth. And I want to stop here for a second because I think I need to mention something that's pretty important that we're finding here in this text. There's a misunderstanding, a misconception in the church today. And it's everywhere. It's not just in Thornhill Baptist Church. It's not in evangelical life. It's not in charismatic life or Catholic life. It's in the body of Christ. It's in the church. And that is this. It's that people see the gospel as something you need to be saved. But once you are saved, you need to move to deeper truths. Well, can I tell you something? It doesn't get any deeper than the gospel. Okay? It's not that, that in our life we, we, we receive the gospel and then we start to graduate into something more. It's that the gospel is what you need to be saved and the gospel is what you need to understand what it looks like to be redeemed. It is the fullness. It is the amazing work of the gospel in someone's life. It doesn't get any deeper than the gospel. 
Now, for those of you who are following on your phone, you can skip over to verse 26 and verse 27, and I'll just read it for you here. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested in his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, that's you and me, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, let's unpack this truth and let it sink in for a minute. Paul says that God's been holding back a piece of truth from previous generations. He says it's a mystery to what he's been holding back. And he says the glory and the riches that has been revealed to the Gentiles. It's not the Jewish people here. It's been revealed to the Gentiles. So what is this mystery that's been held back for generations? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the Jewish people, they were looking for, for Christ from, from the Greek word Christos, meaning anointed one, the Savior, the Messiah. And they were looking for a leader who would come who was incredibly influential and persuasive and powerful, and he would bring Israel back into a time of glory and health and prosperity. He was going to put them back on top. He was going to be the leader of leaders. That, that's who was coming. That's who they were looking for. But nobody would have guessed this mystery that God held back. And that is that Messiah would not just be with you, but Messiah would be in you. That's the gospel. That's what we're talking about here this morning. It's not that it's us living for God, but it's God living in us and through us. It's Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. That's the heart of the gospel. So that's what the gospel is describing when it talks about our spiritual state. It tells us that we cannot solve the problem of sin on our own. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right with God. It reminds us that we were dead in our sins and that we were separated, that we were deceived by an enemy. It tells us that we earned a spot in hell separated from the holiness of God and that we have no excuse. And just about the time that the the angst and the pain and the anguish and all the emotions come out, it almost suffocates us. It's at that moment that the gospel story continues. And it says in the book of Ephesians, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that teaches us about the law. It's the gospel that teaches us about grace. It's the gospel that teaches us about the truth, about Jesus. It's the gospel that teaches us about God's unconditional love. It's the gospel that shows us the importance of faith and the depth of sin and the election of God and the nature of God and the redemption of humanity. It's the gospel that's our basis for peace and for hope, and for life, and for generosity, and our service, and kingdom, and Jesus. It's the gospel. How do you get any deeper than that? You don't. It doesn't matter what you talk about in Christianity. It's focused. It's based. It's centered in Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen? Amen. Now, apart from understanding the gospel, here's what happens to Christians. They'll say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for coming in and, and making a way for me to get to heaven. But, but I'm going to take it over from here, Jesus. I, I got it. I got it. I'm going to clean up my life now. I'm going to church. I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, 
try and solve all the problems in my marriage on my own. I'm going to take care of those addictions. I'm going to pull my socks up and do a little bit better this time. I'm going to, going to step up. I'm going to have more discipline and more focus. And uh, I want more of this. And we need to understand that, that when the gospel is our life, we see that we were not enough to get into heaven on our own. We're not enough to redeem our lives. We're not enough to set things right with a holy creator. Our hope is not in us. It's in Jesus, in you, the hope of glory. And that, my friends, is the mystery that was held back for generations. He says, let the gospel do its full and continual work in your hearts. It's sad that sometimes Christians say, you know, my spiritual life has, has peaked. My spiritual formation, it's, it's leveled off. It's plateaued. Because I wonder how many times that they got to that position because they said that the gospel is what I need to be saved. But now give me something deeper. You see, this scripture that we're studying here says that the gospel is continuing to bear fruit. In other words, it's continuing to work in you and mature you. And it's continuing to do work in our lives. How do you live in victory during a tough time? You let the gospel do its full and continual work in your life. Number five. Be discipled by faithful servants and become disciplers who are faithful. This is found in verse 7 where James read, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who's a faithful servant in Christ on our behalf. Now we're going to break this section down here a little bit by talking first what they learned from Epaphras, and then we'll look at Epaphras himself. Because I think that there are some characteristics that are revealed about him that are pretty important for not just leaders in, Christian, in Christianity or Christian ministry, but leaders and Christians in general. So let's see what they actually learned from Epaphras in verse 5. Excuse me for a moment. Okay. It tells us that they heard the word of truth. And then it says... Uh, of truth. It says in verse 6 that they understood the grace of God in truth. That's the second truth statement in a couple of verses. And any time that you're reading the Bible and you read the same word over and over again, you better pull out a pen or a highlighter because the writer wants you to understand something really important is going on here. So two times it talks about what they had learned in truth. Not hope, not possibility, not hypothesis, but truth. And They understood the grace of God in truth. So God's word, the Bible, is truth. That's one of the Bible interpretation principles we talked about in the first sermon of this series. And uh, I'm going to continue with those principles at a later date for those of you who are wondering. But I understand, there's no question about it, that when you say God's word is truth, that's a statement of faith. And there's no way that I or anybody else can prove to you that God's word is true. Just like you can't prove many of the things that we do and believe regularly. But what we do is, we look at the evidence. And we look at the fact that what God has done and what God has said, and we put these things together, and we see that Scripture says it's true, and that Jesus says it's true, and it seems like billions and billions of people over many generations and in the past have had their lives transformed by these truths and these principles... And then we see, we come to the position that according to Scripture, according to our experience, and what we've seen of our life, that God's Word is true. 
But here's the problem. There's really only one, three ways that that statement can go. The first is, God's word is not true. If that's the position you hold here this morning, then we need to stop what we're doing because we're studying a lie. And I mean, there's no reason to keep on studying a lie. If you don't believe from the beginning that God's word is true, we are studying a lie. And we just need to go ahead and close the service and pack it up and go home and find something else to do and continue our pursuit of truth somewhere else. But there is a second possibility, and that is that God's word is partly true. And that's where not only do the majority of unbelievers But now, more than often, you find believers that are falling into that category. And here's the bad part. That's the scariest and the hardest position to hold on to. Because if God's word is only partly true, that means it's up to you and it's up to me to try and figure out and discover which parts are true and which parts are not true. And reject the parts that aren't and accept the ones that are. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but God didn't put the true parts in green and the untrue parts in yellow. He just just mixed it all together. So it puts us in a pretty bad position because if we believe the Bible is partly true, then it's left up to you and me to discern and to figure out what is biblically true and accurate. And if that's the case, i got a problem on my side because I've been wrong before. And how do I know I'm not going to be wrong again? And when you're talking about something as big as eternity and eternal life and where you're going to spend the rest of your existence, that's probably something you want to be sure about. That's probably something you want to figure out. And also, I've been wrong in the past. And I know, and my wife Debbie knows, that I'll probably be wrong again in the future. But I'll deny it, except for this one moment, for this context. But if it is up to us to figure out what is and is not correct, then we got to put our brains and our wisdom and our experience up against the truth of the text, the Word of God. Here's the other part. This might sound a little bit philosophical, but I, I, I think we're a smart group and we can handle it here this morning. How do you decide what is truth? Or let me say it like this. The idea of deciding what is truth means that you have to have a predetermined measurement of how you decide things are true. For example, how do you know that 2 plus 2 is not 8? Because you compare the suggested answer with the accepted answer. How do you know that a triangle has three sides and not four sides? Because you compare the suggested answer with the accepted answer. The accepted answer helps us determine what is truth. So what is your measuring rod for truth right now? Is it your experience? Is it your personal understanding? Is it to see what everybody else sees first? Is it science? Whatever you determine is your measurement, that now becomes truth. Because that's now what you're comparing everything else against. Now, as a Christian, I believe that we have a great foundation that we can just walk on into. And that is that Jesus said, your word is truth. And as a follower of a Christ, I can either accept that on faith, that he's not misleading me, that he's not pretending to be truthful, and, and I don't have to figure out what parts I think are true and what parts are not true. But the bottom line is, if you think the Bible is only partly true, then you've got a whole lot of work ahead of you. And that leads us to our third possibility, and that is that God's Word is completely, 100% accurate and true. 
If that's the case, then we can just go with what the Scripture says because Paul here claims it to be true. And then you and I are in line with Jesus because he says it's true. The Bible's been proven to be historically reliable. We talked about this in the first sermon, and we compared other ancient books of antiquity up against the Bible, and the Bible stands head and shoulders above all the other famous books of literature that are accepted in our culture. The Bible is heads over the rest of them. The insights are timeless. The billions of people testify how these truths have transformed their life, and it is a statement of faith to say the Bible is God's Word, but it's supported by strong evidence. So the most important question that any of you can ask when you're studying the Bible for yourself, it has to start at the very beginning. Is this word true? If you don't settle that, then you're going to hate reading the rest of the book. Because in these verses that we're studying here today, Paul's already saying, this is truth. Whoa, Paul, you can't say that's truth because I don't believe that you have truth there. I don't believe it exists truth. Well, the Apostle Paul is like, all right, whatever. He's not even trying to defend it, whether he's sharing truth or not. But instead, he just claims that this is truth, the Word of God. And he goes into the next one and he says, they understood the grace of God in truth. If, if, if you're already saying that I don't know if this is true or right or wrong, then you're automatically gambling every time you open up this book. So the Apostle Paul just says, this word, it's true. Now, you might say to me, well, well Freddie, why, why, why is Paul just jumping out here right at the beginning of Colossians and making this point that his word is true, this word is true? Uh, and it's because in the context of the church in Colossae, they were up against false teachings and heretical teachings that were sneaking into the church. There was heresy creeping in that about a different gospel than what Paul had shared, what Epaphras had taught them. And when you're a church going through a tough time, whether it's uh, theologically or in your teaching or your, your spiritual formation, you don't need a good teacher to come in and to offer you some possibilities uh, to counteract your theology. You need somebody who comes in and stands up and says, this is truth. This is what you learned from Jesus. Don't stray away from this path, because if you stray away from the path over here, you're going to be lost when you get over there. That's why he's saying right at the beginning of this letter that it's true. They understood it as true. They accepted the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They believed it as truth. And Paul's teaching it as truth because they're facing error now. And they need to know what is true. And, and one of our prayers in, in this church and the whole body of Christ should be that God would establish each of us, each and every one of us, in truth. That God would give us a frustration from the Holy Spirit inside. That at the moment something does not line up with the Word of God, it brings an uneasiness into our soul. There's something inside of us, it's the Holy Spirit, that just lets us know that's not right. That's not solid. That's not biblical. That's not true. And that's God's Spirit that testifies that the Scripture is true. And Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, when you start to follow Jesus, he fills you with his spirit, and he'll guide you in all truth. So we have the opportunity as believers uh, who have God's spirit living in us to continue to reveal truth as we move along on this journey called life. Now, with all that being said, what did this group learn from Epaphras? They learned truth. He explained part of that by saying that they had learned the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for everybody on the cross. 
But they also learn some basic bedrock foundations of Christianity, and that is faith, hope, and love. And we see that in verses 4 through 5, as well in verse 8. This was a church that was not just introduced to the gospel or to the faith by Epaphras, but this was a church that was discipled by Epaphras. And we know that because the word learned in verse 7 is the same word that Jesus uses when in Matthew chapter 11, 29, he says, learn of me, and he's speaking to his disciples. Jesus was telling his followers, learn my ways, learn how I do things, follow me, become my disciple. It's a word here that's constantly used with discipleship. So now we know what they learned. Let's look a little bit about uh, who they learned it from. Verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras first, our beloved fellow bondservant, faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Here's a little bit of Greek for you. Paul often referred to himself in the Greek as a doulos, meaning a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And in this verse 7, he refers to Epaphras as a soon adulus, a fellow bondservant in Christ. And so by doing that, what he is showing is that their ministries are connected together. In fact, he's saying, I'm not just out here as a servant over here, and he's a servant over there, but rather, he's a fellow bond servant. We're connected. And he goes so far as to say that he's a faithful servant on our behalf. Did you catch that in that verse? Not just that he's a faithful servant of Jesus, but he's a faithful one on our behalf. So what he's saying is that the ministry that Epaphras has in the church of Colossae is an extension of the Apostle Paul's ministry out of the prison in Rome. He's sharing with you guys what I'd be sharing with you if I were there in person right now. And we also find that he's described here as being faithful. We see that he has discipled people in the truth of the gospel. And we also know that he's genuinely concerned with the welfare of their church as well as area churches because if we flip over here to chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, we read Epaphras, who is one of your member, one of your church, he's one of your crowd. He's a bond slave of Jesus Christ and he sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis, which were two cities uh, surrounding Colossae, which were wealthier and more influential in the, in the place at the time. So we find that Paul is saying, I can testify that he has worked hard for you and he has a deep concern for you. He loves you and he wants you to grow up in the faith. That's who Epaphras is. That's their leader in the church of Colossae. Can you imagine what it would look like if that were a description of all Christians who are in ministry, all pastors, all leaders, all elders, servants of Christ, Faithful to the Lord, discipling people in the truth of the gospel, genuinely concerned for how their people are doing, kingdom-minded in their efforts, and earnestly seeking God in prayer. God, fill our churches today with leaders and Christians and pastors who have a heart like Epaphras does. Our city, our country would look a lot different. Okay, let's go back to the original question. How do you live in victory during a tough time? be discipled by faithful servants, and then become disciplers who are faithful. Well, Freddie, how do you know if someone's faithful? You're not going to like it if you don't like the idea that the Bible is truth. 
You have to have a predetermined standard for what is truth. The only way you can know if someone's faithfully fulfilling their role before God is because you can see what their role before God is supposed to be. And what he's saying here is Epaphras is a faithful servant who's discipling them. So how can you be discipled by faithful servants? There's not just one way, just like when Ray played that video this morning, there's not just one way to share your faith or to reach out into a broken world. Uh, there's a lot of ways discipleship can, can come, and, and a lot of the time it's from transferring insight from one person to the next. And it doesn't happen just by showing up to church or at the homeless shelter, or it doesn't happen in small groups or life groups or growth groups. Uh, it's part of it, but there's a number of ways that information can be transferred. Do you know that you don't even have to go to somebody's church to be discipled by that person, right? You don't even need to live during the same time to be discipled by another person. You could read the devotional by Oswald Chambers called My Utmost for the Highest, this great literature that comes from a guy who lives from another generation. He's been passed away for years now, but people today are still being discipled by his great teaching. Luther, uh, St. Augustine, John Calvin, G.K. Chesterton, Charles Spurgeon, William Gurnall, all these guys, as they write and we read, they're sharing insights that they've learned from God's Word, and it impacts our lives today. So you can be discipled by people through books, online sermons, podcasts, and yes, even TV preachers. Now that's not the fullest extent of discipleship, but it's all part of it. We understand that disciple, according to Scripture, is someone who pursues Jesus by loving God and uniting with other believers, serving a broken world, investing in the gospel. We know that according to Scripture, but this is definitely part of the step of discipleship. And so we are to be discipled by faithful servants, and we are to become disciplers who are faithful. So... How, uh, how did the church in the city of Colossae understand anything about the gospel? Because Epaphras shared the gospel with them. You see, he heard the gospel, probably while Paul was teaching in Ephesus. Epaphras heard the gospel, and then he shared the gospel when he got back home to the city of Colossae. And that's part of discipleship. Because discipleship never ends with you and me. That's just, biblical discipleship is more than just the transfer of knowledge. Discipleship has information that's transferred. Transferred. So whatever you receive from God, you in turn share that with somebody else. As God teaches you a principle, you share that principle with somebody else. So we're to be discipled by faithful servants and become disciplers who are faithful. So we'll, uh, we'll finish up with this last point, number six. Encourage those who are suffering. So who wrote the letter to the Colossians? Paul. Where did he write the letter from? Prison in Rome. So what we read here is he wasn't in a very good circumstance when he wrote this letter. He's writing in order to encourage them and instruct them, and yet Paul and Timothy are locked up in jail. They're going through a tough time in themselves. And yet we find here that Epaphras takes this 1,300-mile road trip all the way to inform Paul what's going on in his church back home. That's how much he cares. And he's not just giving them information, but he's, he's dropping off a message according to verse 8. And it says, He, speaking of Epaphras, also informed us of your loving spirit. And this is the second time that we read of the word love. And, and it's the first time was in verse 4. Paul said, He heard of the love that you had for all the saints. And then, and then he says, uh, 
He speaks of the love that Paul has for his companions. So he says, oh, by the way, Epaphras, let us know about your love. So what is happening here is that this group is finding somebody else who's in a difficult spot, and they're ministering and encouraging them. And one of the greatest things when we're living in victory during a tough time is that God will show people all around you who are going through a tough time that you can minister to. A lot of people are struggling. A lot of people are going through difficult things, experiencing loss. They're going through tough stuff. And if we're always on the side of minister to me, minister to me, minister to me, we just become a sponge and we soak it up as opposed to someone who's living in victory and asking God, give me somebody to minister to. You know, there's a statement that church planters use and they say that a church has to transition from being a mission to being on mission. And what it means is that when a church first starts out, it needs help, it needs resources, it needs other believers to pour into that group so they can get started and capable of managing things on their own. But there has to be a time in your life, there has to be a time in a young church's life where they transition from being a mission to being on mission. And and if it doesn't happen, then, you know, 10 years down the road, you still have people with their hands out saying, you know, we can't do it, We, we need more, we need more, we can't do it yet. Instead of saying, God, give us someone to minister to because we're now sound and complete and grown and maturing in the faith, you have to go from being a mission to being on mission. And we know that because the testimony of the church is faith and hope and love. And the testimony was that the gospel was transforming lives. They were known for this. We can see that by the fact that they had a love for all the saints. We can see that in the fact that they're finding people who are also hurting and they're ministering to those needs and they're loving on them. And that's the maturity that you're seeing here in the church of Colossae. So how can you live in victory during a tough time? Colossians chapter 1, verse 4 and 8. Read it. Read it for yourselves. What can we take away from what we've learned in the last two weeks over these verses? We remember that the Colossian church, they had a great reputation. They had a great testimony, even though they were going through a difficult time. They were being attacked spiritually, theologically. I'm going to invite Cara and John. We're going to sing a closing hymn here. But I want to close with this truth. That no matter where you're coming from this morning, no matter what you're dealing with, what you're going through, your context does not define your victory in Jesus Christ. Because our life situation does not determine our victory in Jesus. Your setting does not determine your victory in Christ. I've shared over the last few weeks that that it's been a very difficult year for myself. My wife and I, we've been trying to have children for years and struggling with infertility. And my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And I have friends and family who who have lost people to death. And my dad had a stroke last week. And life can get really hard. But my circumstance does not determine my victory in Jesus Christ. And I believe that. That's why I'm here this morning as your speaker and as your pastor because God is bigger than my difficulties. He's got a plan and he can and he will and he does carry out of what is dark and tragic and, and the circumstances difficult. God can, can light a fire and bring light and bring victory out of a tough circumstance. So John's going to lead us here in uh, the singing of the victory in Jesus and we'll be on our way. Thank you, Freddie. Please open your hymnals to hymn number 526. Let's sing Victory in Jesus. And Freddie, as we after we sing the fourth stanza, can you come for the benediction? Thank you.
Hymn number 526, Victory in Jesus. <laughs> 